Welcome to the Gut Matters Podcast with Casa DeSante, the virtual gut clinic. Today's guest is Dr. Shannon Scholl, gastroenterologist and founder of GastroDirect, a direct specialty care gastroenterology practice in North Carolina. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today on the podcast. And today we're really excited to welcome Dr. Shannon Shaw to the podcast. Dr. Shaw is a gastroenterologist and she's got a lot of good info for us. So we're looking forward to hearing it. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Shaw. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Good thanks here. for being here. Yeah, thanks for being here. Really looking forward to jamming a little bit about IBS and yeah. IBD and all that sort of things. So can you tell us a little bit about your background and what you're doing now and what's, go- what's going on, what your new initiatives are and things like that? Sure. So I, I trained in gastroenterology. I went to medical school and trained in gastroenterology and got a master's in public health at UNC Chapel Hill in North Carolina. I was in private practice in this same area for about 15 years, and I left about 18 months ago and started a solo practice that is out of network for insurance, which allows me to spend more time with patients. I usually spend an hour talking to patients. And one of the reasons I did that is because one of my passions is IBS and the microbiome and how those two are connected. And you need more time than the typical 10 to 15 minutes in private practice to do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. absolutely, completely agree with you about that. So what is, what is your main focus in your gastroenterology practice? Do you see all types of patients or do you have a particular, a particular focus? No, I see all kinds of patients. It's a general GI practice. So you know, acid reflux, abdominal pain, constipation, diarrhea, um, gallbladder issues, food allergies or intolerances. Yeah, I see it all. But my my passion is really IBS. And the reason for that is that so many people become so frustrated and hopeless and feel helpless about their digestive symptoms and they get overwhelmed on the internet and they, they can't make sense out of their symptoms. They can't figure out what their food triggers are. And right. I like being able to help them with that. It's nice to sit with somebody for a little while and just kind of, they usually lay it all out for you as they're talking. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there's a finite list of reasons why people would be having these symptoms. And if you've got enough time, you can go through that list. And so it is figure, it just takes time and interest and I love a good puzzle so yeah the Tempius is definitely a puzzle sometimes so what do you see what do you see is the difference between now when you're doing direct care versus when you were in practice how's your approach has your approach to patients with IBS changed or what do you think is difference in the patient experience I don't know that my chest changed so much as it is that we can get a lot more done because I have an entire hour instead of the problem with insurance is that over time, as over time, reimbursements have decreased. And although doctors are generally very generous of spirit and they are helpers by nature, they're also small business owners. And so in order to continue to keep the lights on and pay the nurse and all that stuff, the only answer to that is to see more patients in less time. And so, like I said, there there are about a dozen causes 
for ice diarrhea type anyway, you don't have time in 10 minutes to go through those. You can maybe hit one at a time. So the patient keeps coming back and keeps coming back and you slowly over months work through the list. But sitting in practices, I do it now with direct care. I get an hour and we can really set up a comprehensive plan to figure out what we think is going on. I agree with you. I see it a lot with some with our clients, some of our clients. They go, they see their doctor, their GI, and they're told to go to go on the low FODMAP diet, for example. And they're yeah. told things like Google it or just giving it a yeah. sheet of paper and told to figure it out. And so it's just so overwhelming yeah. for them. So I yeah, I can see that's, you know, a huge issue within food diseases like IBS that are chronic and need ongoing intensive sometimes time-consuming care to get to the bottom of it. Yes. Awesome. So what are, so can you, so what do you typically see with patients with IBS in your practice? What is your approach to seeing the patient, diagnosing and managing the patient in general? The first thing is a really good history yeah. and going through and asking them about, asking them about categories of foods. If they already know some triggers that can help you, for instance, People often come to me as a second or a third diagnosis or opinion rather for their diagnosis. And certain things will support one diagnosis versus another. For instance, severe pain in one area is more likely to be Crohn's, right? Pain in the upper quadrants or the lower quadrants is likely to be constipation, even constipation with overflow diarrhea. Since that they can tell you about in response to certain foods that are accompanied by nasal congestion or hives or a rapid heart rate, that can be a histamine intolerance. So really just sitting and talking to the patient is the first step. And then you just gather clues and that's the fun part. You gather clues and in my mind, I've got this list and I'm going down. And then once we figure out what we think we're doing with, then we're off what we're dealing with rather then we're off and running. I can give the patient, if we're not really sure, I can give them some homework. For instance, histamine intolerance is one of the big ones that people come with because not all traditional GIs believe in it. It's a relatively new concept. And another one is congenital sucrase isomaltase deficiency. And there's a very easy at-home sucrose challenge that you can assign patients to do. Then they report back. So I think my strategy is really listening initially and getting a clue and then heading in that direction. Yeah, yeah. So that listening part is so important because I think so many patients feel that they're not listened to or they're belittled or their symptoms are minimized. So just listening to and understanding where they're coming from is so key. Yeah, yeah and sometimes that's really therapeutic too because, again, doctors are really rushed. And so sometimes... There is definitely a brain-gut connection, and sometimes there is some hypersensitivity, and there needs to be left with that, and we think that what the patient is experiencing is an amplified pain reaction to normal physiologic digestion, then we need to have a conversation about what that means. And sometimes when doctors are in a real rush, the message that they send to patients is just, you're crazy, or that's what they hear. And so sometimes they come in for validation that they really are experiencing these symptoms, that they are real, that they have a name and a reason. And so some validation is huge. That can make people feel so much better. 
Yeah, exactly. That is really important. One of the other things that I think that issues that patients have is when they have ongoing symptoms, maybe constipation or diarrhea that is intractable and they've tried everything and they don't have answers. And uh, what sort of, what's your approach to those patients? Is there anything that can be done for them? Absolutely. There's something to be done for everyone. Yes. The first thing to do in that situation when people are having alternating diarrhea and constipation is figure out which one you think you're dealing with. Because constipation, severe constipation can sometimes present as diarrhea. And what happens is that, and people, they have no idea. And sometimes you have to convince them a little bit just to entertain the idea that they might be constipated with overflow diarrhea because those people are eliminating sometimes every day, sometimes a couple of times a day, but they're not keeping up. And so they're backed up. And then the liquid stool, when it first enters the colon, just runs around the solid stuff because it has nowhere else to go. It has nowhere to sit and mature and go around. So that's the first thing. If you really think that you're dealing in those cases, when I think it's constipation with overflow diarrhea, that is that question is solved with a simple x-ray, an abdominal x-ray, with a request that the radiologist tell us what the stool burden looks like. And then we know, are we dealing with constipation or diarrhea? Or is it truly a mix? When it's truly a mix, it is a little bit challenging because you can't treat the constipation or else they'll develop diarrhea. You can't treat the diarrhea or you develop constipation. Treatment in that situation is fiber. And fiber has the added benefit Uh, promoting a healthy microbiome because good bacteria love fiber. Yeah. 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 And then how about patients that have maybe ongoing diarrhea, chronic diarrhea or ongoing chronic constipation? Because so many of our clients, for example, have diarrhea and they've tried everything and that's going to be impactful to the quality of life. You can, they can barely go out or go eat or even go to work sometimes because the diarrhea is constant and, um, or maybe the constipation is so painful. For those patients, what is your approach to to those patients? Ultimately, we need to figure out what the problem is, get to the bottom of it, so go through that finite list and figure out what's going on. That's true for constipation too, but while you're figuring it out, it's really important to empower the patient. So I have two, two tricks that I do. One of them for the diarrhea patient is hyoscyamine, which is a prescription medication. And you take it, you know, it's a dissolvable pill and you can dissolve it on your tongue as you're pulling up to the restaurant, let's say, because IBSD symptoms are notorious for happening after you eat out. And then you're sitting at the restaurant, you're right. So taking this medication, just as you pull up to the restaurant, it will kick in around the time that you're eating. And I tell people it won't stop your diarrhea, but it will give you some time to get home. And that's very important because we know, you and I know, that when people are afraid of having diarrhea, their fight or flight reflex goes up. and They are more likely to have diarrhea. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And, And then I also, if it's really bad day to day, I will use sodium. I will ask them to use sodium, just wake up and take sodium first thing when they wake up. And then that sort of takes the unpredictability out of it. They at least know that they can get up and get dressed and get to work. And then for constipation, I really love to use Dulcolax suppositories. That's my go-to. And the reason that I use that is because you insert the suppository into your bottom 
and there is a physical trigger to make the rectum want to expel it. So it starts those contractions going in the right direction. And then the medication itself begins to take effect. And it happens within 15 to 30 minutes that it takes full effect. You go and you have a bowel movement and you, you eject, I guess, the rest of the medication, the rest of the supplement. So you don't have that lasting effect of a medication dose. So you're not out of control. I tell patients, this will let you poop on a dime, essentially. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. And it, I, that taking Imodium, it's, it's a really interesting technique and it's, it works for quite a few patients. But sometimes I hear patients say they take it and then they go from diarrhea to constipation. Do you find that happen? Yeah, sometimes that's the thing about imodium. It works too well. Yeah. Yeah. Too well. <laughs> yeah. But those people, so when that happens, what I will do is back up and I will ask them to take Fibercon. And Fibercon, or you can, you could try other pill fiber supplements. I just, my guess is to use Fibercon. But the point is that it's a compressed fiber pill. And so it absorbs the extra water. In the, in the diarrhea. And it also, again, feeds the microbiome, which is ultimately for most people, what we need to move toward, you know, awesome. even if the diagnosis ultimately is Crohn's or celiac, when it ends up not being straight irritable bowel syndrome, we're still going to need to address the microbiome. Yeah, that brings me. So what are your thoughts on the microbiome? Because I think for conventional physicians, it's not always something that they think about. It's really refreshing to find you talking about it. And how do you approach the microbiome? Oh my goodness, how much time do you have? I This is my favorite thing to nerd out about. And I sometimes people come in and they don't want to talk about their poop or they're a little embarrassed. And I tell them, if you and I were at a dinner party right now, we'd be in the corner and I would be talking about the microbiome and your symptoms. I just, it's my favorite thing. Yeah, and it's a shame in private practice or in general, the traditional insurance world, you don't have time and you just, it's too big of a topic. But it can be broken down. And that is my favorite thing in the world is when you've been talking to a patient for 10 or 15 minutes about the microbiome and you see the light bulb goes off, go off. And I just, I live for that moment. But I think the main takeaways about the microbiome are that it's not that easy, that hard to support it. You just have to be told how, and that how is basically to eat a lot of different plants. And the easy way to do that is to eat the rainbow. And should aim for five different colors, but I don't even, you can even count white as a color, really. As long as it's a plant, it counts. So five plants at each meal during the day and aim for 30 different fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, and nuts in a week, and you will totally hit the target. And that sounds like a lot. 30 sounds like a lot, but it's really yeah. not. You and I sat down because I do it all the time in clinic. If we sat down, you could come up with 25 easily, easily. You and then I can nudge you to come up with five or six more okay. easily. Awesome. Awesome. But so you that's have something, to put that at the forefront of your mind. Yeah. So that's something you work with your patients, getting their microbiome in the right place? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I, in fact, I'm starting an online course, 12 weeks to lead people out of their food intolerances, identify what it is that's bothering them and teach them how they can work it back into their diet and then how to continue to coach their microbiome into full health. And the great thing about the microbiome is that a bacterial lifespan is only 20 minutes. 
So you can make huge changes really quickly within 28 days. If you really try hard and certainly within 12 weeks, you can make so much progress. So how do you know your microbiome is in a good place? So if, for instance, people work with you for 12 weeks, how would they know at the end of it that their microbiome is where it should be or they have to be doing more? Yep. There's no way to test it and no, no real reliable way to test it yet. The science just isn't there. But the way that you know is that you can eat anything you want and you don't have any symptoms. Okay. Okay. And then they would just continue to maintain as with, after they finish the 12 weeks, they just continue to maintain where they're at. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's not hard. It's just that it, for me, I live and breathe it. So it it comes easily and naturally to me, but it is a big topic. And I realize that. And so people need to have it distilled into bite-sized pieces and then it's not hard. And one of the things that I try to teach people is that No one ever told them because we didn't know when they were born, but one of their most important jobs is to be a good steward of the bacteria that are in their gut. Because if they just feed them a variety of plants, their microbiome will do so many things for them that they cannot do themselves in terms of maintaining a good mood. 90% of serotonin is created in the gut. So mood stability, decreasing anxiety, You'll find brain fog lifting, helps in weight maintenance. It's important in immune regulation, which is one of the reasons we think that more severe COVID-19 is associated with obesity and presumably a poor microbiome. I feel like going to do something about my microbiome right now. (laughs) My kids, whenever I bring it up, my kids are like, oh, geez, that's again. I think it's really great that someone like you with a lot of training and credibility is going into this because there's a lot of conflicting information out there about the microbiome and how to take care of it. And so we need more people who actually have the training and the credibility and the background to talk about it and cut through the confusing information yeah. out there so that's great that's really great you're somebody who is credible and who's actually been trained in the gut yeah yeah that's awesome so do you see do you see patients with SIBO I do awesome. all the time so, okay yeah because that's something else that you, some patients find that some in traditional some com- traditional doctors to, might not believe in it and so they're frustrated and they're trying to get help for SIBO and find out who can help them yeah, SIBO is an interesting one because there, there are several things about SIBO. You can usually arrive at a diagnosis just by taking good history. So SIBO always involves gas and it usually involves diarrhea and it especially involves gas after you consume carbohydrates, something sugary or, or starchy like bread. And the symptoms usually come up within 30 minutes because it's beginning to hit the small intestine. It's beginning to feed those bacteria and they start going crazy and making gas and lots of noises. So you can almost get there. And then some patients are a setup for bacterial overgrowth. For instance, anyone who's ever had any abdominal surgery is a setup for bacterial overgrowth. Anyone with a sluggish thyroid, anyone who's needed pain medicine, even postoperatively, at any time. People who are on PPIs are at increased risk. People with diabetes, there, there are definite risk factors. And then the test that is often used, used is a breath test, but the reliability is not very good. It's, a, it's about a coin flip. Yeah. And it can also be difficult to interpret because people who are really constipated are going to have a lot of gas. And when they get their breath tests done, you'll see their levels rise 
but it'll just be one elevation, but it'll meet the criteria for the change in hydrogen level. And so sometimes they get labeled with, with bacterial overgrowth and they get treated and it helps a little bit because it kills some of the bacteria, but then the problem hasn't been addressed. So the constipation is still there. So the symptoms come back. Yeah. And then the final interesting thing about bacterial overgrowth is that it is now in the algorithm for treatment of IBSD to use Zyfaxan, or the other generic name is Rifaximin, which is an antibiotic. It's a non-absorbed antibiotic, so it just goes through the GI tract, killing things, and we're not sure what it's killing. In the case of IBS, it might be a low-level Campylobacter infection. This infection never shows up on stool culture. And so if I am dealing with a patient who has IBSD symptoms and I'm entertaining a diagnosis of bacterial overgrowth, at this point in my career, I don't usually get a breath test anymore. I just treat because by treating with Zyfaxan, I'm treating both IBSD and bacterial overgrowth. The other really interesting thing about bacterial overgrowth that I love is that the longer people have had it, the more bacteria they will have in their small intestine. And we don't have a way to test how much bacteria they have. Yeah. But we know that if you treat them for two weeks, you'll knock back the bacteria. And then you, if they are still having symptoms, but they're better, treat them for another two weeks. This is what the FDA says. And then okay. if they're still having symptoms, you can treat them for another three weeks. So it can take six weeks. So sometimes I get those patients in my office who say, I, they treated me with Zyfaxan, but it made my diarrhea worse. And I always go, Not sh let's talk about that a little more. Because sometimes the problem is that they just had a bad diarrhea day and they really needed more treatment. Yeah, that's recurrence is really an issue for a lot of patients. So that's so for people for patients who you want to give refraction, for example, and it's not covered by the by insurance, which is I'm sure that is a problem sometimes. Yeah. Do you so what do you suggest for those patients? Do you have alternatives or should they just find the money and buy it in Canada or something? No, that is an option. But yeah, sometimes it's just not affordable. So then I go back to what we used to do in the old days. And there are other antibiotics that you can use. Septra is one. Augmentin is another. Doxycycline or tetracycline are another one. Flagyl is one. Yeah. And so what we used to do in the old days is we would do alternating antibiotics. So we would do two weeks of flagyl, two weeks of doxycycline, two weeks of septra or whatever. And then we would wait and see how long it took for symptoms to come back. Maybe they would never come back or maybe they would. And then we would repeat that cycle. The elegant thing about Zyfaxan, if it's affordable, is that it is a treatment against C. diff. Yeah. Sealed bacterial diarrhea. And so we all will feel a little bit better if the patient is taking six weeks of that antibiotic because we feel like, okay, we're we know we're hurting the microbiome, but we're also hurting the bad guy, C. diff, so we have to worry about that less. We don't have to not worry about it at all, but we have to worry about it less. So that brings up a good point, too. So you're getting taken antibiotics, the vaccine, for quite a period of time, and it's affecting the microbiome as well as knocking out the bacteria. What do you, do you think patients to do, should do anything to just shore up the microbiome during therapy, antibiotic therapy? If they can tolerate it, a fiber supplement. But I actually, a study just came out not that long ago that showed that when you're on a probiotic, after you take 
an antibiotic, it actually delays time to reestablishment of the microbiome. So that's been a game changer for me. I used to recommend a probiotic. I don't anymore. Unless they've had C. diff, and then I may use a probiotic just to be careful and hedge our bets. But that, the good thing about Zafaxan is it's one of the kindest antibiotics to the microbiome. So people rebound faster with that than with other antibiotics. But to encourage things along, a little bit of fiber. And again, just a little bit. For people with severe IBSD too, sometimes, meaning also, sometimes they, they have so much anxiety about possibly doing something that will add to their symptoms. And so I will just start them on a half a teaspoon or a teaspoon of psyllium husk. And that just promotes, it makes the guy who survive the, the Zyfaxan happy and healthy. Awesome. Awesome. So thanks a lot for all this information, Dr. Shaw. These are some very important truth bombs that you're dropping today. So we really hope you can come back and talk to us some more about the GI, the GI tract, the gut, gut health and IBS and so on and so forth. Can you tell us where people can reach out to you if people have want to follow you and see what you're doing and maybe even join your course? Absolutely. So I'm on Instagram as ibs.md. Dot doctor dot shoal, okay. IBS Dr. Shoal. And then my private practice, which is located in North Carolina, is gastrodirectnc.com. Okay. Just to clarify, you do see patients from all over the country or yes, it there's a funny thing about medical licenses. The patient has to be standing in the state. They can have one toe over the state line where you have your license. So I currently have a license in North Carolina and I have licenses in neighboring South Carolina and Virginia pending. Okay. And, but how about for your course, do they have to be in a state where you're licensed in or they don't have to be? No, the online coaching is not hemmed in by those yeah, licenses. Yeah. Awesome. So anybody can, anybody anywhere in the world, country, in the U.S. Yeah. can join. So that's great. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Again, thanks a lot for your time, Dr. Shaw. And we thank you for being here. Uh, we hope uh, to see you sometime and keep following your course and see what you do with that. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Find out more about today's guest and episode in the show notes at Casa DeSante's website, caseadzanti.com.